Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor Lacane. Some people think it's already too late to avoid catastrophic results of global warming, and we're on the road to the end of the world as we know it. Others think if we take bold action now, we can still avoid the worst results. Is there hope for humanity? What can we do to build a better future, if anything? Here to help us understand what's happening and what we can do are two informed and fascinating guests. Andrew Boyd is a climate activist who just published a book titled, I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. Welcome to All Together Now, Andrew. Thank you very much, Eleanor. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, to be joined by Gil. Yes, our second guest is Gil Friend, who helps companies design, implement, and measure profitable sustainability strategies. He's advised a long list of impressive clients, including giants like Coca-Cola, eBay, Hewlett-Packard, Levi Strauss, Nike, and Raytheon. He served as Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Palo Alto, which challenged him to make Palo Alto the greenest city in America. Welcome back, Gil Friend. Glad to be here, Eleanor. And hi, Andrew. So, Andrew, I'm really glad you're here, um, even though I disagree <laughs> with a lot in your new book. Uh, but I welcome the conversation because I think you represent a point of view that more and more people are sharing. And I want to give it an airing and challenge myself to it. Um, so in your new book, you create a very grim view of our situation and say we're heading rapidly to the end of the world as we know it, and that our job is not to save the world, but to make it get less bad more slowly. Is that a fair summary of your thesis? More or less, more or less. It's, it's the book is, you know, just to be very, to be frank, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, um, uh, you know, 30, 30, 30 years doing um, sustainability consulting for governments and, 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 you know, flagship corporations. I'm not a policy wonk. I'm an activist. I'm a, a humorist. I'm an artist uh, and I'm, uh, you know, an existentially challenged human uh, trying to be honest, uh, you know, uh, about our circumstances and try to be in good faith with my own my own work as an activist, you know. And so I sort of hit a hit a point where I was, you know, we're going, there's still time. Yeah, we have everything we need except political will. Um, you know, we can we can prevent, you know, climate catastrophe is a, is a problem we can prevent. Uh, we can fix we can fix all this let's do this you know uh keep hope alive you know that whole kind of narrative that sort of powered me through I've, i'm a lifelong activist i've done the you know various causes uh, from sweatshops to uh to nuclear power to uh marriage equality to affordable housing you know for for years and that sort of engine of hope has powered me through all that but i sort of uh, the, the the book came to be as i did a, a reckoning with uh with our trajectories that we are on and you can just read the headlines, you know, the we're we're 1.5 degrees centigrade as a, a red line that scientists have said, you know, we cannot cross without potentially, um, uh, you know, feedback loops that we that will sort of get out of control and and possibly create, you know, extremely dangerous uh, spirals 
of 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 ecological impacts. Uh, you know, we're blowing past 1.5. We're currently on track, according to, you know, the 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 most trusted source of truth, uh, climate climate action tracker, to a a 2.7 degree uh, warming future. Uh, you know, that's past two. It's past 2.5. We're in terms of biodiversity limits and any number of other red lines. We are we are past points that are very dangerous. You know, the UN said, you know, 1 million species are potentially at risk, you know, and the list goes on. We've all heard it. It's, it's very, we don't need to sort of rehash that litany, but just trying to, to not, I just, the, the, the book is a thought and heart experiment about not pretending that things are better than they are. So that's, that's just a premise. And, and as an activist, as a can do eyes on the prize, let's, let's, let's make this world a better place kind of person. How do I reorient to the fact that there is that given given that we have failed to act at, at the speed and scale of the problem for for so long that we are past the point of being able to to avoid some fairly catastrophic impacts not like you know the end of humanity level things but a but a a sort of a partial potentially a you know very possibly a a, a very let's just say a very rough century um and uh potentially a partial collapse of civilization that we can recover from but a a kind of experience that we've never had as a as in historical memory certainly so how do i orient myself how do i stay engaged where is my agency what is the right strategy what is the right story to tell myself and others given that um we're in for a really rough future um, so that thus the title of the book or the sort of core concept of the book, if we're going to get a catastrophe, how do we get the best one we possibly can? So what is a better catastrophe and how do, what do I need to do to, to bring that about? And how do I think and feel about that? Um, so it's a, yeah, the, it's so in a sense, the, the book is a toolbox to help people emotionally, psychologically, philosophically, and politically, strategically, uh, sort of, um, Yeah. Uh, reorient themselves on that path and be uh, stay. Yeah, that's that. Yeah. yeah, I could say a lot more, of course, and I no. will <laughs> end it. There. No, I, I think <laughs> that's good. Actually, what you just said to me was more hopeful than it sounded when I read your book. Fair so, enough. Um, but I, I will say, you know how we all have many voices in our heads. I do have a voice that agrees with you in the sense that we have already passed a certain number of points of no return and that we've done enough damage with the greenhouse gas emissions uh, that we have global warming, we're interfering with the climate in a way we cannot avoid climate disasters. I would agree with that. And there was actually an experience I had 20 years ago. I actually started 40 years ago speaking out about the threat of global warming and um, well, obviously not to great effect, but at least I was adding my voice in there. And then about 20 years ago, I got hit with this realization. Oh, my God, this is absolutely devastating. We are talking about millions of people whose lives are on the line, countries that are going to be wiped out, shoreline, earthquakes, hurricanes, the whole scenarios. I actually saw it vividly in my mind and it was very depressing because then I thought, well, what can I do that will match the scale of the problem we're facing? And there was nothing I could think of that 
could meet the scale of the challenge we're in. Um, but that was followed by a realization that we each need to do whatever we can and get beyond the narcissistic view that it's up to me to save the world. So if each of us can do what we can do, then we can make a difference and, and make it better. I'm 100% uh, with you on that. But I, I do have another voice in me, I must say, that um, is in violent disagreement with your book and okay. that I actually felt in reading it, I felt it was irresponsible to have you on the show and talk about it because my focus has always been on solutions and what we can do and that I did not want to be a party to promoting a point of view that is dangerous and demolishing. And in fact, I would want to kind of crush that view because I think <laughs> it's so dangerous. <laughs> okay. So a, for, for what it's worth, I'm a very solutions oriented person and I'm just recalibrating what solutions are still on the table, what are still viable. Um, even if we, you know, even in the best case scenario, what, what can we expect? So it was just trying to, mm -hmm. uh, uh my emotional and my whole history is very much uh, oriented in the same way that you're describing. And um, so, yeah. yeah. And I will say, I think your role, your book has a very important role to play. And the, where I came to is believing like Greta Thunberg would love your book mm. because it's part of Greta Thunberg's power is she stands up and she says, the planet is on fire. We are burning up and people are not taking that seriously enough. And she like wants to shake us up and wake us up to the level of challenge that we've got. And I right. think that's, you know, a piece of what your book is going. We cannot do business as usual. We can't. It's like the pandemic. We have a pandemic. We can't right. go on with business as usual. We need to shut down businesses. People need to stay home. I mean, we need a dramatic system-wide response to a life-threatening challenge that we ourselves have created. Agree 100%. We're in a climate emergency. How do we shift into a climate, an emergency mindset and an emergency footing of our entire society and, and economy like we did in World War II kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And and yeah, and more. Gil, I'm going to invite you to join in. You are one of the world's leading um, sustainability advocates and practitioners. You've helped cities, you've helped corporations move towards being uh, more more climate friendly. What's your sense of where we're at and of this conversation? Well, Eleanor, I'd go back to something you said. <clears throat> Eleanor, I'd go back to something you said at the top of the conversation. Uh, you said the end of the world as we know it. Mm -hmm. You didn't, that's not the end of humanity. Mm -hmm. That's not the end of the world. But it's certainly the end of the world as we know it. Uh, the world that we all grew up in um, is either gone or going. Um, the post-World War II order, the growth and optimism of the 50s and 60s, globalization, that is either ended or ending. Um, what comes next, we don't know. Uh, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian revolutionary, said just about, I think, 100 years ago this year, uh, says the old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. And between them is the time of monsters. 
And that may be why it feels the way that it does to so many people right now. Monsters, you know, not in the sense of big, nasty, fire-breathing dragons, but of primal forces unleashed that are shaking everything up. And it will not be what it was. Um, you know, Arundhati Roy also said that uh, a new world is coming. Mm -hmm. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. Yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful, poetic. But beautiful, both of them together hold the story for me. Um, um, yeah, you know, Eleanor, you and I and Andrew in your way and many of us have been working for decades to trying to turn to try to turn the ship away right. from this uh, iceberg to mix metaphors weirdly. <laughs> um, um, and, you know, Eleanor, I disagree with you. I wouldn't say it's been a total failure. There has been a re remarkable shift mm -hmm. uh, in awareness and social orientation. Uh, the United States is a real exception in the world. Most of the world is in motion on, uh, on, on global warming and climate change, not fast enough, granted. Um, but there's a seriousness that, is, that has taken hold in the planet in part because of the thanks, thankless work that thousands of people have been doing over the past few decades. Um, and, you know, and, and you don't see it in the in the normal press, but the list of innovation and accomplishment and progress is stunning. Uh, you know, one marker of it is that we reached the point where renewable energy is cheaper almost everywhere in the world than fossil energy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, 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 Even, it Gil, tell me if this is tell me if this is right, but it, in, in, in many uh, countries, new renewables is cheaper than keeping an old coal plant for example i was just about to say exactly yeah, sorry that. sorry I, you know, exactly that it's 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 in many parts of the world it's cheaper to build new renewable generating capacity than just run the existing coal plants we have coal plants in asia that are being powered by solar <laughs> coal mines that are being powered by solar i mean so uh, the coal mines got it yeah. on. and if you look at the cost curves and the penetration curves this is moving every year people have to ratchet the projections because things are moving faster than they expected on the good side of the equation uh, unfortunately, it's moving faster than expected on the bad side of the equation, too. Yeah. The warming is coming faster. The climate destabilizations are coming faster. The systems effects, the interacting systems effects are becoming more visible and more known. So, you know, we're, we're in a world of trouble. And I don't think any of the three of us deny that. The question is, what do we do about that? And um, I came across a quote this morning. I loved it. It's from the uh, from uh, Christophe Béchou, who is uh, the French. Get this, the French Minister of Ecological Transition and Territorial Cohesion. Oh my God! Can we order one of those, please? Yeah, yeah, really. And he said, "Say that again. Say that again. I love that title." He's the Minister of Ecological Transition and Territorial Cohesion. Wow! And he said that uh, he said, prepare for the worst. He said, we need to mitigate global warming by reducing greenhouse gases and wh while planning for a strategy, to, uh, planning for a strategy for adaptation to a warming of four degrees Celsius. Oh Whoa. my God. Now, four degrees Celsius for people who haven't looked at the literature is, is disastrous. Yeah. The scale of change that it's hard to imagine. If you've read uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, Ministry for the Future, it opens with a scenario that's uh, that is so devastating that I frankly had to I had to start reading that book four times mm -hmm. before I could get past the third chapter. This is the the India the India heat wave. India. Yeah, yeah, like that's... what happens if the temperatures go off the charts in India? So so there's that. So you know, 
here we are living between these worlds, right? Mm -hmm. um, doing everything we can to mitigate and dealing with the likely reality of a very different world than we have. You know, for years, we would talk about the three R's of recycling. You know, we reduce, reuse, recycle, kind of a hierarchy stack of what to do first and what to do next and what to do next. Um, there's maybe a new tri trio for us to be thinking about now, which is mitigate, reduce the emissions dramatically as much as we can, and more than that, adapt to the world that will face us no matter what we think, no matter what we wish for, uh, and then reinvent everything we do. Gil, may I? I think you're unintentionally setting me up to read uh, one of the funnier and shorter pieces in the book that's exactly about mitigation, adaptation, and the and the sort of striking the right balance between all of those things. Eleanor, may I may I take that Please. opportunity? Go ahead, Andrew. It's a great moment for funny. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We made it funny, and I appreciate your gallows humor. So lay it on. If it if we're in for a four degree centigrade warming future, we need uh, that much more gallows humor. All right. So this is. This is from the um, What is Still Worth Doing chapter. And it's uh, the piece is called, the, the book has lots of little short pieces. Um, and this piece is called No Need to Choose Between Mitigation, Adaptation, and Suffering. Just get good at all three, especially <laughs> suffering. Um, so anyway, gallows humor, here we go. On the question of whether it's too late to prevent catastrophe, physicist and former Obama White House science advisor, John Holdren tells us, quote, we basically have three choices, mitigation, adaptation and suffering, which is like telling someone to please choose between one, unpleasant and painful things you can do to reduce how unpleasant and painful things are going to get, two, unpleasant and painful things you can do to get used to how unpleasant and painful things have already gotten, and three, suffering. <laughs> um, if this sounds like a poor set of options, welcome to the 21st century. Nonetheless, we grit our teeth and make our choice, and then given how high the stakes are, we tend to insist that our choice is the correct one. Guys, we have to keep trying to do unpleasant and painful things to prevent a catastrophe, even if we don't think we can anymore, because anything less will they'll let government and corporations off the hook. No way, man. That train left the station long ago, but we can still do every unpleasant and painful thing possible from radical emissions reduction to carbon sequestration to mitigate the impacts. Are you kidding, says a third person? Those are useless techno fixes. The only thing left to do now is every unpleasant and painful thing we can think of to adapt to our new abnormal, totally reinventing how we live so we can survive in resilient communities. Meanwhile, others take a page from the Jewish grandmother in the light bulb joke. I'll just sit here in the dock and suffer. Okay, okay, we got the idea. Okay. Gil, you want to comment? Yeah, the only thing I disagree with about that, Andrew, is that um, is unpleasant and painful. Because it turns out that a lot of the things that we need to do to mitigate and adapt and reinvent uh, and to reorient the you know global civilization as a whole are neither unpleasant nor painful. You know, I make my house more energy efficient. I both save, I, I reduce greenhouse gas emissions and I save money and I'm more comfortable in my house. Fair. You know? I, I change the approach to the building codes and the zoning of my city. And I have a city that's more prosperous and more congenial and where people spend more time together more easily. Um, you know, I can go down a long list of these that are neither unpleasant nor painful, but are actually attractive and satisfying and rewarding. And oh, by the way, economically advantageous. So um, that's fair. I think this was, that was a concession to the humor 
Uh, no, I get the humor. Yes, no, it's, it's, fine. it's a good but, point. But I, but I'm drilling on it because what you touch in the humor, Andrew, is the background assumption of the culture that it's either or that you either do well or do good. You either make money or you care for people. You either protect the environment or you maximize your profits. Um, and as somebody who's been advising major corporations for 30 years, I'll tell you, um, on the one hand, that's what everybody assumes. We'd like to be more sustainable, but we can't afford it. So to help us do just kind of a tiny bit of bullshit. Uh, and when the reality is, is that we unlock for companies untold profits, money in places they didn't imagine, a scale of innovation and an economic benefit that they assumed was not there. But once we start to look through the climate lens, and once we start to look through the ecological lens of how things really work on this planet, opportunities open up. So I'm, I'm saying this not to be Pollyannish, not to deny at all that we're headed for a world of hurt, but a lot of what we need to do is, is pleasant, exciting, uh, profitable, fun, not unpleasant and painful. Um, right. I agree with that. And, and I just want to um, kind of amplify a point that Gil made, because you made this when I interviewed you last on this show a number of years ago, Gil, in advising corporations, there is this faulty assumption that, oh, if we have to do the right thing environmentally, it's going to cost us a lot of money and we don't really want to spend that money when in fact so many of the things that can be done when you reimagine your operations and think about it from a resource use uh, point of view that you have identified hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars worth of savings and profits that people were just wasting you know the 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 literal waste of companies that can be turned into a resource and instead of, you know, in, in that increased efficiency yeah. saves money and makes money. Yeah, it's, 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 it's billions with a B, Eleanor. And it's not just material waste, it's waste of opportunity. It's, 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 it's you know, it's making the wrong offers into the market. It's failing to coordinate effectively with your own people. With, with one of our clients, it was actually their estimate, not ours. Lar large industrial company, people would recognize the name if I gave it. Uh, their assessment of the value that we identified for them, the expanded profit that we saw for them was as bad, about as big as their total global revenue existing. And this is a great company with terrific leaders and outstanding systems. And this was an opportunity they literally could not see on their, on their balance sheet and in their profit and loss statement. It just didn't show up in their, in their management systems, their financial systems. So we need to ask different questions. We need to look in different places. And that needs to be driven, I think, by what it is that we really care about. You know, part of the, we've talked about this before. Part of the challenge of the world we live in now is that companies are oriented to maximize short-term profit. Um, and, you know, like you say, there's this debate about does that sacrifice environmental well-being or vice versa? Well, what if companies were focused on what can we do to contribute to the well-being of all life as an organization and people that belong to the living world? Uh, Andrew, you you have an interview with Robin Wall Kimmerer mm -hmm. in your book, who's a great is a fount of wisdom about this perspective. You know what what would happen if we did business as though we belonged to the living world, like we belong to a family? You know, you don't throw out your kid when they get bad grades at school. You're you know you you have a commitment to each other that is deep and long, and you figure stuff out together. 
What if we could figure stuff out together and, you know, and deal with the unpleasantness and the pain and the suffering that may be part of the journey of life? Because, you know, it is a part of the journey. You know, life has this tragic element. What if we could do that? And, you know, and for the, and for the asset managers and corporate executives listening, do it in a way that is profitable. Do it in a way that meets the requirements of your shareholders. Uh, do it in a way that keeps you in business. Uh, but do it in a way that you can feel proud when you come home at night to your family or when you look back on your life when you're done with your career and know that you did well uh, for the world around you and for the people you care about as well as for your economic responsibilities. I'm all for, I, I, I love the work you're doing. I'm all for doing following Eleanor's lead of doing everything we can in the places that we're at with the skills that we have and the gifts that we have. Um, and, you know, with the fingers crossed that if we're all doing that, you know, then we can get through this. Um, I'll just make a few notes. One, yes, there are, there are changes we can make as we're, um, you know, being buffeted by these, by the impacts that we've unleashed on ourselves, you know, as you said, that, can make things more democratic, more just, more more humane. Uh, have communities, you know, sort of have a have a higher quality of life, etc. But there are also, you know, things that are going to come down that are going to be unpleasant and painful. You know, like it there isn't really a not unpleasant and painful way to relocate, you know, millions of people from southern Florida when that part of the you know state goes underwater. You know, just to take one simple example, or given the structures that are in place and and the the asymmetry of impacts away, you know communities of color are way more vulnerable to climate impacts, you know, rolling brownouts and emergency services. And, you know, the, the levees are going to under pressure in New Orleans, you know, they're, you know, as they were during Katrina, right? It's going to hurt the poor communities, not the rich communities. And so there are, yeah, so that that's just, that's baked into our um, unequal and, you know, both in terms of power and uh, economic privilege, uh, access to resources, ability to, you know, escape to a nice farm in Vermont kind of thing versus sort of, you know, bearing the brunt of it on the front lines. So all of that is in the mix. And just we can't pretend that we can sort of tweak, um, you know, quarterly, you know, our, our sort of corporate, uh, you know, mission statements to 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 for that to not happen. Now, not not to say that there isn't a role for enlightened, uh, you know, corporate governance. I'm all for it. It's absolutely essential, absolutely necessary. But we're 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 like for example, just it's not just about how fast we deploy renewables; it's about how fast we 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 stop emitting carbon. And we've passed certain Absolutely. points where it's just like it can Absolutely. happen gently. Like we need a moratorium on all new fossil fuel um, infrastructure, for example. Only that can only come from you know that can only come from government. That's not going to come from sort of the benighted uh, decision making of fossil fuel companies, for whom that is sort of like a a um basically a death sentence for their for their business model just just to bring that all into the mix we don't this isn't mainly what the book is about um nope. but you're you're, 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 sp you're spot you're spot on and yeah. there the world is filled with financial institutions who have promised to stop investing in fossil fuel development and are still investing in fossil fuel development yeah. so the hypocrisy is there uh you say it has to come from government i would say yeah but what's government government is us yeah, well, it's, I'm sorry, social social movements sort of forcing government to sort of take take a sort of a a degree of action that they've been unwilling to do so far. Yeah, um, yeah, and which includes in the case of the United States, you know, uncoupling the legalized bribe, bribery um, that organizes our political system, which means that fossil fuel companies 
make what is to us a very large investment in owning Congress people, but for them is an incredibly lucrative investment in terms of the ROI of the money mm -hmm. they spend on lobbying compared to the money they make from subsidies from our tax money. Um, and we, you know, yeah. we pay for our own destruction. Yes, so, for sure. Yeah, There's so, what is it? I think 420 worldwide, not just in the US, 420 billion dollars of subsidies worldwide uh, for the fossil fuel industry. Uh, even more than that. Okay, it depends. Um, There's I'm different seeing numbers between half of that is just half a trillion that's just built into the system. That's our money, as you say, feeding you know, sort of paying for our own destruction. It's it's exactly. unconscionable and just speaks to the ah. <laughs> ah. Yeah. So so my response to the R is not to go run away to Vermont or New Zealand. No, absolutely. Uh, but it's to dig in. Yeah. Um, and, fight, and fight this and fight for the new, the, you know, the end of the world, as we know, it hope opens the possibility of doom and destruction or a better world or some weird combination of them. So the question right. is, what do we do? You know, that's right. And for me, hope is not a prediction. No, it's a stance. It's a yeah. way to choose to live. You know, when 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 the German bombs were falling on London early in World War Two, the British people didn't despair, you know, and they didn't give up. And they certainly had their share of unpleasant and painful and suffering and, you know, death and destruction around them in daily life. Uh, but they dug in. Yeah. Uh, and in, you know, it's it's easy to forget in retrospect, the odds weren't clear. No, they didn't know that they were going to, you know, that they and the allies were going to defeat the Nazis. That's right. It could have gone all the way downhill, uh, but the, the the grief and the terror and the despair didn't translate into inaction. Agreed. Because it couldn't. Because there was no place else to go. And we have well, no place else to go either. Right, exactly. And, and that is where, while on the one hand, Andrew, I think your book plays a, a constructive role in the sense of acknowledging how deep these problems go and how destructive the climate crisis is going to be for millions of people in the country and around the world i mean we're already the colorado river is yep. running dry and i mean you oh, can yeah instance after instance you know it's already here i mean we can't say we're going to stop it all because it's already with us it's not next generation, it's now. So in that sense, I think it's a good kind of alarm bell. But um, where I differ with you and where I would not recommend people read your book <laughs> is because you, are, you sound the alarm bell so loudly without giving... Uh, the other, you know, building in some of the other stuff uh, that it's a both and that, yes, this there's destructive processes in place. Some of it's kind of beyond our reach to stop at the moment. And at the same time, there were some incredible changes happening. I mean, the fact that renewable energy is now cheaper than fossil fuels pretty much everywhere. I mean, yeah. that is going to be a game changer as, you know, more and more people go quickly to that. And I think you're missing not only is the acceleration on the global warming, the acceleration is also on the people building new, the new world. People like Gil Friend, who's out there hands-on working with the corporations to reduce their resource use, reduce their greenhouse gas emission. And I think there there is also, in my mind, the... Um, 
the critical nature of having hope, hope, you know, choosing hope, having hope, and hope can increase your ability to imagine a different future. I mean, what Gil just said, I don't want to slide over it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. What if we asked a different question of our companies? Um, what if your focus was not just maximize profits? What if your focus was how does this company contribute to the well-being of all life? And I actually could see, like, look how dramatically people reacted and responded when we had the pandemic and yeah. just things that you never thought would happen, happened. Um, creating a new vaccine in under a year and company, you know, cooperating across a company and national lines to work to help save people's lives. Uh, the shutdown of economic enterprise that you would thought nothing is gonna stop this economic engine, boom, we did. So I think it could be entirely, things could happen and accelerate in a positive way in ways we don't even know right now. And if you stomp on hope, you might as well give up. And we need to foster hope, to foster the imagination, to make the dramatic shifts we, <clears throat> we need to make. I'm with, I'm with you 100%. And I'll just say that um, the book is actually, I mean, it was motivated by a quest for hope, a kind of hope that would serve us. Uh, given, you know, that we're, as Gil says, we're, you know, the experts are telling us that we're in for a four degree centigrade warming world. You, you know, that's enough for people to just, you know, just block it out or just assume it's all over and go, you know, party till it's 2099, as I say somewhere in the book, um, uh, or, or just sort of, you know, okay, someone else is going to take care of it and cross their fingers, you know, uh, and, and hope for the best. And the, none of those, those are not engaged. Um, those aren't moral stances. Those aren't, engaged stances, those are not helping. And so the book is like, how do we look squarely at the fact that we're in for a four degrees centigrade world, possibly if this if this um, minister in the French government is is accurate, or at least a you know 2.5 and up world and have hope and do everything we can. So it's not like a simple optimism. It's a not like um, we can make small tweaks, uh, you know, to in, in corporate governance. We need, like, as you said, Eleanor, just uh, massive change uh, at in, at scale and speed and and how do we what are the it's like inviting people into hope but not bullshitting them right so so I, I sort of, it's an investigation into hope i, I would love to read a, a, another tiny little passage where i look at four different kinds of hope that i discovered um and that we some of those aren't going to serve us and some of those will um may i may i do that or i think this is a rich conversation let's okay let's keep with the conversation yeah, you so, you know your book, and okay. uh, I'm sure you'll so draw just, whatever you need. So when I was, um, I asked all the, you know, I went and spoke with people from all walks of life. I spoke with, um, uh, and and I and I went and interviewed and sat down with eight leading climate activists uh, and and you know climate thinkers from jo eco philosopher Joanna Macy to climate activist Tim DeChristopher, uh, as as Gil mentioned, Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, you know, indigenous botanist and others. And you know, I, one of the questions I asked them was like. You know, hope's not a noun. Hope is a verb. So how do you hope? You know, how do you hope? And how do you hope knowing um, that we're in for a four degree centigrade world? Um, and there were beautiful responses. But, you know, so one of the leading voices in the climate justice movement, Gopal Dayani, in your neighborhood, Gil, in, in Oakland, um, said, you know, just it, it's sort of acknowledging the darkness and then 
stepping into the light. So he said, we are going to suffer. So how do we distribute that suffering, you know, most equitably? You know, so how do we bring justice into the into the hurt that we're in for? Um, uh, Adrian Marie Brown, one of the, you know, a visionary uh, in, in so many ways, um, uh, said we're in for we're in for a, a bad fall. So how do we fall holding a child on our chest? You know, how do we go through the rough stuff in the future and protect the most vulnerable? You know, so these are these are extremely hopeful, positive, you know, driven by the light and with, you know, grounded in ethical principles, but not pretending that things are better than they are. So I sort of went seeking that kind of wisdom. Tim de Christopher described hope not as the expectation of a good outcome. And we know from this conversation, we're not in for a good outcome, but the ability to, the will to hold on to your values in the face of difficulty. Now that is a beautiful sort of, that is a beautiful re-understanding of hope that serves us uh, going forward, regardless of how things play out. Holding on to our values in the face of difficulty, that is his sort of very engaged um, hope. It's a, a sort of, a, yeah, it's a ethical, stance uh you know and then there's the famous i think underlying all of this and some of what gill is saying the famous quote from baklav havel you know that 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 underlines all of this hope is not an orientation hope is an orientation of the spirit an orientation of the heart it is not the conviction that something will turn out well but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out and that's baklav havel you know famous playwright and president of the uh the first president of uh, liberated the Czech Republic. Um, so it, it, that's, uh, I would not, I would say the book tries to be, is, is maybe dark and doomy because it's trying to reckon with the truth of our situation, but it's really seeking out hope and holding up those gems uh, and offering uh, those kind of, uh, yeah, like offering, a way for people to basically step forward into a very dark and uncertain, scary future, holding in one hand, um, you know, the impossible news that climate scientists are bringing us, and in the other, you know, all of their heartbreak, their fighting spirit, their their solidarity, their care, their kindness, and all that human stuff, you know, and walk forward into a very scary, uncertain future, not pretending that you know that it isn't that is better than it is. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yes and no. Yes okay. and no, I mean, because you also interview in your book, and Gil, I'm going to get to you in a second, yeah. but just yeah. because I've read the book, I'm going to yeah. raise this piece. You mm -hmm. also interview in your book conservation biologist Guy McPherson, and, and quote him as saying that humanity is going to be extinct within a few generations. That's his view, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't share it, but that's his view. But you're <laughs> uplifting it in your book, and you uh, talk about okay. going to Meg Wheatley, as program in Boulder, um, mm -hmm. and quote her as saying, "There's no hope, and give up hope." Uh, I I don't know whether that's a Buddhist thing about you shouldn't be attached to anything, including hope. But I find oh, yeah. that very depressing okay. and demoralizing. And I think you <laughs> give a lot more weight in your in your book to the depressing and demoralized than to the let's reimagine what we're doing let's recreate let's take the giant leaps we need and and even just recognizing who is already doing that i mean the work that gil friend is doing the work that mindy luber is doing with series i mean she's been working with the financial institution she's directing trillions of dollars away from fossil fuel and business as usual into companies committed to sustainability 
So um, I think on balance, your, your book, in my view, is mm -hmm. irresponsible and the heavy weight of doom and gloom, given that people need, I guess we need to recognize the level of challenge, and I appreciate that piece of it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, if you're delivering that news, there's a, a responsibility, in my view, to also acknowledge the the great work that is being done and that we need to accelerate. Gil, your comment? Well, I think when you said yes and no, Eleanor, you put your finger on the heart of the challenge. This is a complex mess. And the, and the public conversation and the media conversation uh, doesn't handle nuance and complexity very well. It wants black and white. And this is not that. This is more in the mood of the Greek tragedies where we're, you know, where you're stuck in a situation and the outcomes aren't going to be good and you have, you have choices to make, but each choice has its consequences and, you know, there you are. Uh, so I think, you know, I haven't read the book yet, as I said at the top of the, of the you conversation. Said, you said you, you, you scanned it ferociously for two days in in between you know 20 meetings you know come on that's reading yeah. these days come on that counts for reading yeah so <laughs> I, you know, uh, uh, what i can't speak to andrew is, is how what the balance is in the book compared to the balance of this conversation sure uh, but i think the nuance uh, that we're that we're surfacing here in this conversation is really important is that somewhere between between um the grief that takes you to surrender to despair and surrender and the denial that takes you to everything's fine, it's all gonna work out well, nothing to worry about. Between those two poles is where we live, which is that we are headed for trouble. Yeah. Uh, it's gonna be far more disruptive, I think, than we imagine. I mean, you know, yeah. Pavel also said, I'm not an optimist because I'm not sure that everything ends well, nor am I a pessimist because I am not sure that everything ends badly. Yeah. You know, I carry yeah. hope in my heart. Hope is the feeling that life and work have a meaning. So there we are. So um, uh, can, I, can we see a, a, a show of hands? Show That's of what hands I, on the rate. Show of hands. Eleanor, Eleanor. Radio. Yep. I think we're all there. We're, we're the very... You know, so how do we in the face? <laughs> look, here's, here's, here's the, the joke inside of all this is that we're talking about an enormously uncertain future. Yep. Right. But you know what? The future has always been uncertain. We act as if it's not. Sometimes more than others, though, right? What's going to happen tomorrow? You think, I mean, nobody knew six months before the Berlin Wall fell that it was going to fall. Yeah. Et cetera, so et cetera. We, we talk about these tipping tipping points on the on negative, you know, these, these very mm -hmm. horrible tipping points of the of the earth chemistry. But we there's also tipping points of social action and consciousness. And, you know, there's, you know, it's sort of a little bit of a battle of tipping points. Absolutely. Here. And that's where Eleanor has been focused for as long as I've known her. And what are the positive tipping points of the things yeah. that are working uh, that, I mean, to contrast the despair that is the story of the media that you know where you know the the rule in media is if it if it bleeds it leads right easier to cover a fire than to talk about a complex conversation but um what people don't see in those stories is all the millions of examples of creative initiatives at everything from corporate level to grassroots in wealthy communities poor communities uh, northern countries, southern countries, there's a lot that human beings are doing. Paul Hawken in his book, Blessed Unrest, chronicled you know, yep. thousands of these examples. Yep. And that story deserves to be told too, because they contribute to the tipping point. The yep. fact is, we don't know where the tipping points are. And the question is, what can we do to hopefully nurture them, increase their odds, sow the seeds, um, 
we're um, I host the monthly conversation called Living Between Worlds, where we you know mm-hmm. look at the process, not not just the strategies, but the ways of living in these times. Mm-hmm. And next mm-hmm. month, we're going to have a gentleman talking about the tipping points in network theory. How do the mm-hmm. how do the networks of relationships between people contribute mm-hmm. to the kinds of change we want to see in the world? And you know, Kimmerer would have some things to say about this, looking at how mm-hmm. how people relate in traditional communities versus those of us who live in cities. Mm-hmm. relationships with our neighbors or not with thin and thin connections so um i don't want to get magical about it it's not like you know somebody's no. going to come and wave a magic wand and the tipping points will just happen but you know we do the work we yeah. do the work that we can day to day yeah uh, and and that's a place of hope is that maybe there are surprises maybe there are some attractive surprises ahead of us as well as some unpleasant ones. What can we do to nurture those? Yeah, I'm with you. Um, yeah, Gil, I'll be interested if when you do read the book, um, with what you feel the balance of light and dark in it is. I'll just tell you, despite dis- despite Eleanor saying that she doesn't want to promote the book and is not promoting the book by having it featured <laughs> on the radio program, <laughs> there's an already missed on that one. I, I'm, I'm actually very- And I, and I thank you for that. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, I'm very eager to read it. Uh, thank you. Page and thoroughly. I look forward to that. I, I will just report from the front lines. I've been on book tour now for three, three, uh, three, three visits, New York, uh, Boston, and Portland. Mm-hmm. And a lot of young people, 160 people showed up in, in Boston, most of them, you know, undergraduate aged. Uh, mm-hmm. We had it at Northeastern University. And, you know, alongside the book, I sort of had a slideshow of all the all the activist, you know, climate activist work that I'm involved in and that I think are the sort of greatest hits of some of the work adjacent to the work I'm doing, you know, and people appreciated both, you know, they, they've been told all the, you know, 101 things you can do to, you know, make the, you know, to, 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 to save the earth, you know, they've been fed that and they've been also fed the doom and they appreciated the honest conversation about, as you, you know, as, as I think we're having here um, about, what agency, you know, what margins of, of agency are left us, you know, don't bullshit me about that things are better than they are. Like, mm-hmm. let's just, let's, let's, I don't know, this, the, the inviting into the conversation without needing, without needing things to do, to be so, you know, we're, without needing, yeah, without just predetermining that everything's going to turn out well, you know, like we, we just have to let go of that. And that allows us to have a more honest conversation and people feel more held. They feel more, their intelligence um, and and full range of their emotions is more honored and respected. And they're not turned off. They're like, people were like, they're keen to dig in. Uh, but I just feel that necessary. There needs to be some grieving. There needs to be space for grieving. There needs to be space for people to have their doubts, um, to go through their hopelessness and then find their ground. Um, you can't, you know, there's, yeah, uh, the false hopes strike a false note. And I think uh, disrupt our ability to be fully engaged. Um, so that's part of the premise of the book. Um, yep. yep. False hopes aren't helpful. I'll, uh, I'll, yeah. contrast, <laughs> I'll, I'll contrast hope and false hope. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and there's plenty of work to be done. Yeah. But. But I would say, um, how do you know what hope is false? And there's so much that's unknown and so much that's uncertain. And 
I I do have this belief in people in in Americans and people around the world as light dawns about the depth and breadth of this challenge on the climate that there can be kind of that awakening and there is already with this Gil saying millions of people so um I don't think it's false to offer hope it can be different I do think it needs to be stated there's no guarantee that this is going to end well and what I say to people is we're we're at a point where it depends on us which way we go are we going to fall into a descent of a climate abyss and by the way it's not just climate it's very widely a lot of ecological mm-hmm. environmental conditions it's also our health i mean are you aware like for example right now it is the norm in the united states for someone to have an extreme health problem including heart disease cancer diabetes that is the norm that's more than half our people have that we've got challenges in our democracy uh where we almost lost yeah. it this past year if yeah. even one of those secretaries of state yeah. had won a race last year we would have lost america as a beacon of democracy so um so it's not just climate there are many things but what i say to people is it depends on what we choose to do we can go down a- in a negative way in any one of those four arenas um or we could use this crisis as an opportunity to build a better america and to build a new world and that's where i have focused my life for decades is if we were to do that what would that look like and how do we create it and i find it more constructive and hopeful and fun to focus in that way to give guidance and direction and inspire hope and reimagination gil it's interesting that that's what all three of us are saying in different ways you know we have different you a middle child no go on <laughs> no well, I'm, I'm, I'm the middle on the screen here so i'll go with i'm all that. for it i'm all for it don't worry you no know, we're we are we have different interpretations about what the odds are we're focusing on different parts of the drawing, but all of us are saying we're in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not we're not checking out in a delusional la-di-da, everything's fine. We're not checking out and it's hopeless, there's nothing to be done. We're all of us saying we're facing difficult times and difficult challenges, and there's work to be done together. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. I I pulled up while we were talking this cartoon from I don't know, it must be about 10 years ago. It's a it's a cartoon of somebody on the podium at a climate summit and his really? slideshow. This cartoon slide- is in the book, by the way. It must be. You know, the, yeah. it's showing energy independence, preserve rainforest, sustainability, green jobs, livable cities, clean air and water, healthy children. And some in the audience says, well, what if it's a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? Here you are, well, audience out there on Eleanor's YouTube channel. This is the one, right? Yeah, that's the one. So, yep. you know, it's so brilliant. Let's do the work of creating a better world. Um, how much it will turn the tide of the potential catastrophes, we don't know. It's still the right thing to do. So let's do that yeah. and do it as best as we can and as fast as we can and as collaboratively as we can with as much love and joy as we can and see what happens. Yeah. Tune in next week for the next episode in the exciting adventure of humanity on planet Earth. Here we go. Exactly. We're in a titanic struggle. No pun intended. Right. Well, very apt metaphor. There you go. Um, 
Can I mention that I am coming to DC uh, on Tuesday the seventh? Um, yes, be, be, yes, and we'll get to that in okay, just okay. one minute. I just okay. wanted to say there was one uh, bright light in the dark shadow in <laughs> reading your book, Andrew. Okay, and that was I felt so depressed when I was reading it, and then I thought, well, what difference does it make? I might as well eat all the ice cream I can eat. Ah. Well, there you go. <laughs> wonderful week of eating delicious ice cream. <laughs> well, you have not there's nothing to fear when you have nothing left to lose, you know, and you just, you know, there right. it is. It's a, it's a there's a way in there's a there's a thread in the book about you once you hit, you know, hit, you hitting that bottom of despair and that's a, a very powerful liberating uh, you know, empowering kind of experience sometimes, but that's part of the the cycle of what we go through. So, I'm glad you're eating the ice cream. What's your favorite flavor here? Are you a you know, Hagendas person or a Ben and Jerry's person or, so, or Ed's person or something else. Well, I go by um a mint chocolate chip, and I my favorite was uh Brigham's chocolate chip. Oh, Brigham's, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So, but they've now sold, and the last Brigham's ice cream shop in the universe was on my block in Arlington, Massachusetts. And Ooh. believe me, I did everything I could to keep them going. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. A one woman. You filled your freezer. But the, the, I, I awesome. do want to, uh, I do want to uh, ask you to talk about both, you know, where are you showing up and how do people learn for both of you? How do people stay in touch after this radio show? That's great. Um, uh, yes. So um, I'm on tour with the book. Uh, I want a better catastrophe and I'll be That's in... the title listeners. Thank you there. That's the title. <laughs> Title title of the book and here's the here it is. Um, I'm on tour. I'll be in Baltimore tomorrow night uh, at Red Emma's. I'll be in D.C. on Tuesday night uh, at the uh, new headquarters of Greenpeace USA. Um, I'll just say that it's at 13 I Street Northwest uh, in East Washington D.C. Um, and then I'll be on to other cities and you can find the full tour at uh, bettercatastrophe.com as well as read a free a few free excerpts uh, and all the other things you might want to know about the book, uh, bettercatastrophe.com. Uh, over to you, Gil. Um, people can find me um, uh, pretty much all over social media. Uh, company is natlogic.com. Probably the compendium of uh, what I'm up to is Linktree. Uh, that's um, Linktree with a dot before the double E slash GP friend. And that's kind of a catalog doorway into uh, into all the things I'm up to. Yeah. And I'll just put in a mention of the main project uh, that I am uh, co-leading. It's called The Climate Clock, climateclock.world, not .com or .org, but .world, climateclock.world. And uh, that's tracking uh, the timeline that we need to be on to avoid uh, the worst of the climate crisis. Uh, and many, Eleanor, you would like to know, many solution metrics and how we are making progress on them and you know, uh, helping to keep the world, basically get the world, all the stakeholders, those with, you know, those in the grassroots and those at the, at the tops of the corporations uh, to act in time, to get on the same timeline that we need and to act in time. So climateclock.world. Uh, and I am the chief, not the CEO, meaning the chief existential officer. <laughs> Eleanor, I thought you would appreciate that. Uh, you know, Gil is liking it too. Okay, back to you, Eleanor, to close us out. Yeah, well, just thinking of a story to close us out, I, um, 
And my first book was on uh, building on what works and uh, looking at these successful models that are really breakthrough and transform their whole field if we would adapt and adopt them more widely. And a friend thought that was very exciting approach and connected me into Jerry Brown, who was at that moment running for president. So we flew from California into New Haven, Connecticut, and they put me in a van next to Jerry and I'm, you know, kind of downloading to him. Here's what's working and here's this model and that model and all the things that Mm. not only can happen, but are happening already if we would be smart enough to identify and adapt and adopt it more widely. And Jerry then that night went to speak at the University of Connecticut and he had a packed house and he started the speech with all kind of the, what I would call, you know, negativity, doom and gloom, the corporations, Mm. the influence of the very wealthy, uh, you know, they're blocking the progress we need to make. And he was very honest and about the level of challenge that we faced. And then he pivoted to the what's working. And but we can do this. And, you know, so and so is doing that. And we got a school in Harlem where 90 percent of the kids graduate. It was absolutely riveting. And I have never seen an audience so electrified. Like he took the roof off the place, Mm -hmm. but I think it was the combination of acknowledging the depth of the problem and not being Pollyannish about it. And at the same time saying, we have solutions. There are many things we can and are doing, and we, we can get this done. And I think it's gonna take both of that, neither doom nor gloom nor Pollyanna, it's going to take both of those together mm-hmm. for us cooperating to really use this catastrophe mm-hmm. as an opportunity to create a better America and a new world. Yep. So yep. that's my closing. And I thank you both, uh, Gil Friend, for your wonderful yep. comments and Andrew Boyd. Um, for your work and really enjoyed the rich conversation. Thank you both. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here.